We're not looking for proof, we're looking for evidence. Evidence of probability. And on Monday we saw evidence of the revelation at Sinai for nationally experienced miracles. Yesterday we talked about Jewish survivors. Today I want to add two smaller points and draw the conclusion and try to leave about a quarter of an hour for questions. There is some evidence that traditional Jewish communities enjoy a higher quality of life than the groups among whom they live. I mean, higher quality of life with respect to values that are shared. It will not do to talk about the quality of life of keeping kosher. Nobody else wants to keep kosher. But freedom from drug addiction and alcoholism and violence and suicide and depression and divorce and theft and robbery and rape and so forth and so on. And the presence of literacy and the ability to defer gratification and social integration, community support. values that we share with the people among whom we live. And the comparison is restricted to local communities. It will not do to compare Hasidim living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn with non-Jews living in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Or other extravagantly rich suburbs. I take the same environment, the same locale, same living conditions, and there is considerable evidence that the quality of Jewish life is superior. Some um, literature on the subject is cited by Rabbi Kellerman in his book, Permission to Receive, as a rundown of some of the social science literature. At one conference on alcoholism, National American Conference, one of the speakers suggested that the most efficient way to reduce alcoholism in the United States would be to make everybody Jewish. Because nothing else seems to work. And the Jewish population has an extremely low rate of alcoholism. It's not zero, but it's very low. And so it is with respect to all the other desideratums. Don't make the six-year-old mistake that aren't there Jewish murderers also, even religious ones? So what? Most social scientists cares about isolated cases. They, they care about statistics. And on a chart of statistics, the numbers are so small that they are extravagantly different from the surrounding population. 
Now, this is also not the result of an artificially controlled environment. Some will say that the Amish have a similar set of statistics, and that may be true. But they achieve it by very strictly controlling the environment, not using electric machinery, having a rural population which is isolated totally from their surroundings, homogenous communities altogether. We have achieved it in, in rural settings and in urban settings and suburban settings. Different cultures, different governing economies, different topography. One historian writes that if you would look in medieval Europe for what today we would call civilized living, the only place you could find it would be in the Jewish ghetto. Feudal living is what today we would regard as uncivilized. The only place, for example, where women had rights and where people didn't have life and death control over other people at their whim. Under the feudal system, the feudal lord had life and death control over his serfs. So, there is considerable evidence that traditional Jewish living carries with it this improved quality of life. And, if you look at the same statistics for assimilated Jews, in the United States anyway, what you find is that each generation further assimilated, the more the figures come to resemble those of the general environment. So you get to fourth generation assimilated Jews, and they have the same rate of alcoholism, and the same rate of violence, and the same rate of uh, illiteracy, and the same rate of divorce and the rest as the non-Jewish population. So it is not a genetic phenomenon, it's a cultural phenomenon. If a person gives up his belief in God and decides to eat cheeseburgers on, on Saturdays, that doesn't mean that he sheds all of his cultural values immediately. There'll be a hangover of cultural values for a few generations. But after a while, it can be bred out and diluted to the point where it's forgotten. Now, this is something that also requires some kind of explanation. Uh, finally, there is the question of the impact of Judaism on the world as a whole. We talked yesterday about Jewish survival. I pointed out that we survived under conditions which should have led to our disappearance. If God had taken us off someplace to an island, isolated us, protected us from all contact and influence, and provided for our physical needs, our survival wouldn't be a surprise at all. If we had survived for 5,000 years, it wouldn't have been a question, it wouldn't have needed an answer. An isolated group, there's no reason why their culture shouldn't survive. But we lived at the crossroads of three continents. We interacted with all the great cultures of the time. And yet we survived. The last 2,000 years we survived as tiny minorities under the power of great 
successful, well-developed, sophisticated cultures, and we still survive. Now, it's not just that we survived, but that our ideas have had a profound influence on the world as a whole. So that, in a certain sense, if you trace history of the last 3,000 years, you could say that the world is becoming progressively more and more Jewish. Think back 3,000 years ago. Everyone was worshipping idols. Everyone believed in many gods. And the Jewish people said, listen, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. The whole thing's a mistake. There's only one God. There aren't many gods. And he doesn't have any physical form. And he's morally perfect. He demands moral, uh, a moral life from human beings. And you can't pay him off with sacrifices. That's a way that you acknowledge him, but you can't pay him off. He will not do favors to you because you bring sacrifices. In the entire Bible, it doesn't say once, not once, that if you offer sacrifices, you'll get benefits. Not once. Every time it discusses the temple and the sacrifices, it ends off by saying, and if you keep all of its commandments, then you will get certain benefits. It never says that by slaughtering animals you get a benefit. <coughs> so our views in that first thousand years were regarded as simply ridiculous. Ridiculous. Nonsense. Absurd. You'd ask anybody during that thousand years to predict the future of Jewish ideas? And the answer would be, they'll end up in the tough bit of history. What do you mean? Ideas are just ridiculous. All the great empires, all the great powers, all the creative people, creative, um, uh, intelligent people, had a pantheon of gods. Could we compete with Greek philosophy? Could we compete with Greek with, with Roman power and Roman economic and international international law? This is a joke. It's pretty shocking that today about forty percent of the world's population shares our general belief based on our book. Okay, there are differences of interpretation, correct, and there are some differences of detail. But that this little, trivial, insignificant group of people should have sold their book to 40% of the world's population is shocking. You have the United Nations in New York. The United Nations. The whole world. Today, six and a half billion people. What sentence is written into the cornerstone of the building? A verse from Isaiah. From point oh 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 one percent of the world's population, that little tiny insignificant group. It wasn't taken from a band of natives in Polynesia. It wasn't taken from the Australian Aborigines. It wasn't taken from Central China. It wasn't taken from Rome, that ruled the whole of Europe for three hundred years. It was taken from Isaiah. I think we should be shocked about that. The values and the basic worldview of our book have become the values and basic worldview directly of 40% of the world's population and through their economic and political and military achievements is spreading to the rest of the world. So, it's not just existence 
Not just survival, but it is also impact. Impact far out of proportion to what should have been expected on the basis of our numbers and the basis of our political, economic, military, scientific influence through which the other ideas could have written as a secondary effect. We didn't have any political, military, scientific, mathematical, philosophical, agricultural, <coughs> ceramic influence on the world. Just these ideas. Now, what to do in the face of this evidence? We have a prediction from Deuteronomy 28 to 30 of conquest, exile, survival, and return. That prediction is of extremely low probability to come true, and it came true. It came true in every detail. One has to ask where that prediction came from. It seems that whoever made the prediction either knew that it would come true, despite its being extremely low probability, or, there's another possibility, isn't there? What's the other possibility? Made it come true. Had the power to make it come true. Or both. Well, any one, capital O, any one who could know something like that, or make something like that happen, it's got to be some one special. And if there were public miracles, public nationally experienced miracles, like the plagues in Egypt, like the crossing of the Red Sea, like the revelation of Sinai, the power that is responsible for that certainly goes beyond any power that we are aware of. Even today, with modern technology, you couldn't pile up the waters of the Red Sea long enough for the Jews to cross and for the Egyptians to walk into the trap and then collapse it on them. Certainly not 3,300 years ago. So that power must have some agency available to it that's beyond what we are aware of. And the survival of the Jewish people, to engineer the survival of a people in the face of historical forces, psychological, sociological, economic, political forces requires vast intelligence and a certain amount of power. And to provide for a superior quality of life in competition with other groups who do care about the quality of life and who do work on it, do research ways to invest, invest in it. And that this little tiny group of people should be the wedge through which world civilization is advanced. The minimum inference from these factors taken together is the following. There has to be an agency, an agency that is not restricted by normal physical limitations, has power far beyond normal physical limitations, 
can predict and or generate extremely unlikely events and has a special relationship to the Jewish people because it is, it is to them that he performed these national miracles and it is they whom he kept in survival throughout the millennium and who has an interest in the rest of mankind because he didn't take the Jews and put them on a South Sea island someplace but preserve them in such a way that they will have an effect on the continuing development of human civilization. Now, these characteristics are, famously, characteristics that the Jewish tradition associates with God. God has the power, He has the intelligence, and He has the interest to perform all of those Actions. This much of what the Jewish tradition states about God, I believe, can be read off the historical record. It's very difficult to avoid the inference that there is a being with these characteristics. Now, of course, that's not all the Jewish tradition says about God. There's many other things. Those other things are items that we have no way to directly test. That God is the creator of the universe out of nothing is something which we cannot test directly for or against. Although, as you're all aware, the Big Bang Theory is a big step in the right direction. 60 years ago, even just 60 years ago, Someone who believed the creation out of nothing, the whole universe created out of nothing, would have been regarded as completely unscientific. A hundred years ago, even more so, because that's before they knew that the universe was expanding. Impossible. Inconceivable. So a Jew, a hundred years ago, maintaining its belief in creation was against the entire scientific and philosophical establishment. Tough place to be. It's heartbreaking to think of a Jew a hundred years ago, let's say 22 years old, who's learned something about the scientific worldview and said to himself, how can I possibly continue to believe in Judaism when it goes against the entire scientific establishment. The universe is infinitely old. They have a beginning. It's always been roughly the same. Even Einstein believed it. He even believed it in 1915 when his own theory said it wasn't true. He changed his theory. Couldn't face it. It's a great revolutionary. And the Jew said, how can I stand in the face of the entire scientific establishment? They've got to be right, and Judaism has to be wrong. And let's say he dies in 1910. What a tragedy. If he'd only lived another 10 years, another 25 years, he would have learned that the entire scientific establishment was wrong. The universe has a finite age. And according to many mainstream opinions, 
It came out of nothing. That's an astonishing reversal. That isn't to say they believe God did it, but what they believe happened is much closer to our description than it was for the preceding millennia. All of whom felt that the universe goes back forever. So there are many things that the Jewish tradition says about God that can't be assessed directly. It can't be assessed directly. Let me just add one more little tidbit. Think of light. In your experience, where does light come from? It comes from the sun, the moon, the stars, fire, phosphorescent rocks, lightning, which comes from clouds. Do you ever see light with nothing producing it? Almost a non-existent phenomenon. Now, our Torah says that there was light before there was anything else. Before there were stars. The first thing that the Torah says God created is light. Where would you get an idea like that? It's not part of your common experience at all. It just so happens that cosmology agrees. But the first thing there was, was free radiation and particles. And it took, in their story, hundreds of millions of years before the first stars were born. Sure, it was just an accident, right? That our description agrees with the original uh, cosmological description in that, in, that, in that area. It was just an accident. But what an accident. What a phenomenal accident. At any rate, what to do about all the rest of those descriptions in the Jewish tradition that can't be directly accessed. They can't be directly compared with the, with the data. Because they refer to items that are beyond our experience. They refer to the future, coming to the Messiah, the world to come. The answer is this. In any body of information, you are able to, to access, to check, to verify only a small proportion. Newton said that the way apples fall on the earth, so gravity applies throughout the universe. How much of that have we been able to check throughout the universe? Gosh, we haven't tried it even on Jupiter. <laughs> Nobody went there and dropped an apple. The universe, according to the scientific picture, is 12.4 billion years old. It's 12.4 billion light years in extent. That's awfully big and awfully old. How much of that have we checked? I mean, you never get finished putting all the zeros on the, after the decimal point of what percentages we've checked. Why then do we accept the idea of gravity everywhere? Because where we check it, it works. And the normal thing to do is, you have a piece of information, and you check it, and where you check it, it works. You accept it. You accept it. You may call it provisionally if you like, but you accept it, unless and until you run into trouble. Now, in the case of, of gravity, you have one extra factor which works in its favor. And that is, you're talking about a single law. A single idea with one single definition. It is what I would call maximally integrated. It's one single, simple, integrated state. When you test it, and wherever you test it, it seems true, 
then you accept it in its full extent, even though what you tested is a tiny, tiny fraction of its full extent. That's correct. On the other hand, if you have a collection of information, disconnected information, let's say like the New York Times, then the fact that what it says on one page is true may say nothing at all about what, it's, what it says on the other page is true. I expect that the sports page of the New York Times, well, it's the New York Times, you can never tell, but I expect that what they say in the sports page is generally true. It doesn't say anything about the op-ed page, which is usually egregiously false. Because they're two entirely different subjects. One thing has nothing to do with the other. Now, the Torah, Jewish sources and information, stand somewhere in between. Obviously, there's a lot more complexity to Jewish information than there is to the law of gravity. On the other hand, it isn't disconnected information like the New York Times. What binds it together is that all the information is explained by and supports the same integrated picture. The picture is that there's a creator of the universe who has a purpose for all creation and that the Jewish people are a, the key element in achieving that purpose. That's the picture. Every detail in the description of God is related to that picture and expresses that picture. Now, when you have a body of information, all of which is explained by the same integrated picture, then when you test one part of that body of information, the test it turns out to be accurate, you have a right to infer credibility on the rest. Credibility? Well, that's it until you discover counter evidence. And then you have to deal with it as best you can. So, the parts that we can test, test true. The parts that we can't test, get credibility from the whole. Uh, my conclusion is that we have adequate evidence that the Torah is true. Is Judaism based on faith? Faith is a word you can't find in the Jewish lexicon. Okay, it's true. In some translations, there are Hebrew words that are translated as faith. But the translators are not accurate. They don't appreciate what the word faith means. In English, English being a Christian language, the word faith means believing in something for which you do not have adequate reason. Believing in something for which you do not have adequate reason. That's what faith means. We have no uh, connection to that. That's not... An, 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 concept in our lexicon, where those books translate faith, I would suggest substituting the phrase rational trust. Rational trust. Trust means that I go beyond what I have in front of my face. But sometimes it's reasonable to go beyond what you have in front of your face. We have to trust that the information in the tradition that we cannot test directly is true. Yes, that requires trust. But we have adequate reason to trust it. Emunah in Hebrew really means trusting something, being trustworthy to something. 
In biblical Hebrew, it's never used to believe anything. And rabbinic Hebrew, where they invented it, it means to believe. But it doesn't mean to believe without reason. There's nothing in the Jewish tradition that a person is asked to believe without reason. Nothing. And that being the case, my conclusion is that we have adequate reason to accept the Torah as true. <coughs> Questions? Isn't there some mitzvah that we don't know the purpose of? Yes. There are mitzvahs for which we don't know the purpose. But it has nothing to do with what I said. I said we have adequate reason. Knowing the purpose of a thing is not the only kind of reason you can have to do it. If your doctor tells you to take a pill and you don't know anything about pharmacology and nothing about physiology and nothing about body chemistry, so you haven't got the foggiest idea of what its purpose is, except that it's good for you, but not how or why, you have adequate reason to take it, even though you don't know its purpose. Yeah. So the reason why that there are all these other cultures from I'll tell you, Maimonides has, in his Laws of Idol Worship, a description of where idol worship came from. It's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating uh, portrayal. Briefly, what he says is this. Adam knew the truth. He knew that there's a single creator who runs the entire universe. Then you have the degenerations of the flood. Noah and his children knew the truth. Now, what is the truth? God alone created, creates, present tense, maintains the existence of everything in the world, and gives each thing its powers. The sun is pretty important, right? Because if it would go out, we'd all be dead very quickly. The sun is pretty important. Of course, the sun doesn't do anything on its own. It's shining because God keeps it shining. That's quite right. But it's very good that he keeps it shining because without it, we'd be nowhere. Now, as generations went on, that slipped a little bit. If God uses the sun as the instrument by which to keep us alive, then the sun is very important. It's very important to God also. He doesn't do it by heat glowing out of the ground. He does it by the sun. So shouldn't we show our appreciation for the sun, our respect for the sun, our honor for the sun, being God's instrument by which he does these things? One of the reasons you have to honor your parents is because God chose them as his tools to bring you into existence. That's one of the reasons you honor your parents. So if God makes our existence dependent upon this great instrument of his, shouldn't we also show honor and respect to that instrument as a way of expressing our appreciation to God that he made it work that way? Now we're down the garden path. Right? The next step is, well, you know, since... In daily terms, everything depends upon the instrument. So, yes, God is running everything from on high, somewhere. Well, I can't really picture him anyway. But the sun I can picture, and the sun is something which he chose as his instrument, so I show a condition to it, and then you invest it with its own powers, as if it were a governor over province, and you think of God as the king, the emperor, and the governor does things on his own. Of course, he's subject to the emperor, of course, and the governor has to obey what the emperor's 
general guidelines are, but the governor does make particular decisions about how to run his province, and therefore it's good to give petitions to the governor because he's the one making the particular decisions. And little by little, the idea of the universal creator is lost in the background of these more specific powers. That's what the Ramam says. Everybody started with the idea of this, of a creator who runs the entire universe, and little by little it was replaced by the ideas of more local powers, each with its own province. And I think that there is a bit of natural psychology here, as I mentioned to some of you in a different context, because intuitively there is no reason whatsoever to think that all of the basic forces of nature come under one power or one agency. Just think, the sun comes up and down every day, every year it goes through the same cycle, and it's exactly the same. Now, what about the wind? The wind blows stronger some days, a weaker other days, unpredictable. Maybe there's a certain variation in seasons, but within the days of the weeks, unpredictable. What about the sea? Well, you have the tides coming in and out at a regular predictable level, and then you have storms which whip it up to gigantic heights. Then you have grass. Grass grows in the spring, and it flourishes all summer, dies in the winter, grows in the spring again. Is there any reason to think that the power that makes the sun shine the same all the time, with the same regular cycle, and the power that makes the wind blow in a very irregular pattern, and the power that makes the sea vary in a very regular pattern, and the power that makes grass grow are the same power? Is there anything intuitively similar with these phenomena? And now you have a dog. A dog sees, a dog hears, a dog walks, it eats, it reproduces sexually. Anything in common between the power that makes the grass grow and the power that works the dog? And then you have a human being that thinks. Isn't polytheism natural, intuitive, even obvious? Why would you associate all of this with one power? It requires a gigantic leap of imagination to take the idea of monotheism seriously. I think that's why polytheism is really the universal picture in the ancient world. Because intuitively it's very obvious. You're looking at the world and making the most obvious inferences from it. I would even say it's reasonable in that respect. The idea of unifying the whole of nature under a single law is uh, something which it took thousands of years for human beings to achieve. And some, uh, the idea, they haven't achieved it yet, they haven't found the law, but the idea of looking for one. And uh, some historians say that it's linked to monotheism. If you think that the whole of the universe is the product of one creative agency, then it's at least possible to think there's one law that underlies the whole thing. But if you don't think that, why should you think there's one law that underlies all the shenanigans of um, Jupiter and Pluto and uh, all the rest of the members of the pantheon. So, that's the way my mind describes it. He describes it as a deterioration from uh, uh, an original state. No, I don't know what that means, but uh, anyway, this is how, this is how it deteriorates. Yeah, other questions. Can I go into the national experience stories? Sure. 
was the size of a pyramid or something like that. Uh, but it's... Like the numbers of soldiers, that yeah. many, like we have archaeological evidence that would exist that that many, that number of people don't exist, and that number of ships couldn't have existed at that time. Okay, uh, let me just point out, I mean, I, I can just see directly this is my argument, but let me just point out that this kind of archaeological shenanigans are extremely weak. They're extremely weak. They're based on not finding things. Now, um, I wonder if he's taken into account the fact that before the patriarchs, which is over a thousand years before the Iliad story, there was a city in, in Syria called Ebla, which they estimate housed a quarter of a million people in one city. Imagine a few cities like that. Uh, they're talking about a population of millions of people. So, uh, I don't know why one thinks that uh, the size of the population you're talking about is impossible. I'm talking about a thousand years later. Furthermore, as one archaeologist pointed out, um, whether or not an event leaves behind remains is a very tricky proposition. There are two universally accepted wars of major proportions in history, at least two, which left behind no archaeological evidence whatsoever. The conquest of Babylon leaves behind no archaeological evidence at all. The conquest, William the Conqueror, who con conquered England in 1066, there's no archaeological evidence for that conquest at all. All we have in both cases is verbal reports. No one doubts that those, those conquests took place. So when someone tells me that it's impossible that there should have been such things because he didn't find enough evidence to support it, I have a right to be skeptical, I think. In this country, all of the hullabaloo about there was no Exodus and there was no King David and so on and so on has to be put in the parentheses of the fact that they estimate 85% of the material from the biblical era has yet to be unearthed. So all of the conclusions they're basing is, on, is based on 15% of, of the evidence. That's not a very rational conclusion, I would say. It makes the papers and you can earn money with articles in Harper's Magazine, but uh, I don't think it's destined to be of, of long-term scholarship. Now, the final point, though, is this. My argument is we're talking about an experience, a national experience, which will change the life of the nation. Now, not every fact about the national experience is going to be what changes the life of the nation. I can imagine that the names of the individual people, especially the secondary uh, uh, people in the story, could be forgotten over time or changed over time. The exact numbers of people could be forgotten over time. These are not the, the items that are going to make a change in the life of the nation. That we sent uh, an army and that we conquered and one of our great foes and that they came back with booty, that's going to change. But the exact number and the exact size of the, of the particular items that they took not everybody saw the, the items, and not everybody experienced them. So, uh, and they particularly are not going to make that kind of change in the life of the nation. So, obviously, when I'm talking about an event, 
that's going to change the life of the nation. I don't mean every detail associated with the event is going to be part of the package that changes the life of the nation. I'm talking about the event as an event as a whole. I'm talking about the difference between creating a myth and having a historical event. That does not mean that every detail of, of the information is going to be preserved correctly. So would you allow some exaggeration to take place? For sure. So what about when the case of the Jewish people or the Torah stuff from outside of All I said was that a story about your entire ancestry is something which it, we have consistent, unbroken evidence is not made up. I didn't say that you have to accept it two and a half million people. I didn't say that was uh, confirmed by the, by the fact <coughs> that it's uh, an ancestral story. No. No. It's true. But this particular argument doesn't support that particular detail. Correct. Yeah. Scientists are using carbon dating to, like, to date back items to be 10 million years old, whatever, billions of years old, and we only said the world's been around for over 5,000 years, so... Yeah, okay, well, let me just correct you so that you won't uh, say this in other contexts where they'll be less charitable. It's not carbon dating. Carbon dating works to about 50,000 years and no more. Carbon dating is very inaccurate and very limited. But it is potassium argon dating and uranium dating, and they have other ways of estimating the, uh, the age of the universe, basically uh, on the basis of the redshift, which gives the idea of expansion of the universe, and they run it backwards. I want you to know that about five years ago, the universe was 18 billion years old. Uh, now it's become younger. It's about 12.4, 12.6 billion years old. It fluctuates from, from year to year. But uh, don't let that bother you. It's a lot more than 57 to 64. That's correct. Um, now, uh, there are two ways out. I have to do this briefly. I usually give myself a half hour to do this, but I'll tell you the two ways out briefly. One way out is to say that 5764 goes back to Adam because the first chapter of Genesis indicates the chapter of Genesis indicates itself on literary grounds <coughs> that the six days don't have to be six 24-hour periods. Listen, I chose every word in that sentence carefully. I only mean what I said. I said the first chapter of Genesis on literary grounds indicates, I didn't say it had to be so, it indicates that the first six days don't have to be 24 hours, they might be, but they might not be, depending upon how you read it. Because the sun wasn't in place until the fourth day, wasn't created until the fourth day, so the first three days are not what we call days. What we call days is a sun cycle around the earth, or the earth rotating on its, on, its, on its axis facing the sun. No, a day is not 24 hours. In fact, the scientists will tell you that the day is getting longer, and 24 hours is not getting longer. The day is getting longer, because the Earth's rotation is slowing down. And if the first three days aren't what we call days, then the last three days, all of which are joined by the literary phrase, it was evening, it was morning, the end day, which occurs nowhere else in the entire thousand pages of Tanakh, which means on literary grounds, the first chapter is setting aside that time period as different from everything else. So there's no necessity to take the first six days as 24-hour periods. And there are Midrashim and statements in, in Kabbalistic works which say specifically that the universe is much older than 2064. So you can have your, uh, your um, dates of billions of years. is perfectly all right. 5764 goes back to Adam. I, you'll tell me that mankind has been around for much longer than 5764. That depends on what you mean by mankind. If you mean a bodily form and intelligence, that's one thing. That's what the anthropologists mean. 
If you mean a bodily form, intelligence, um, spirituality, and morality, for that there's no evidence at all. There's just an assumption of continuity, but there's no evidence. To assess the spirituality and morality of a creature, we must have its linguistic productions. Behavior will never tell you that the creature possesses any concept of spirituality or, or um, morality whatsoever. The oldest linguistic remains that we possess go back 5,300 years. I didn't say they didn't have language. I said we don't have their linguistic productions. So there's no direct evidence that what we call human, to our date, so we get to define human, there's no, no evidence of what we call human existed more than 57, 64 years ago. That's one way out. The other way out is to say that the entire universe goes back 57, 64, period. And all of the older indications are misleading evidence that God put into the creation. But it's misleading evidence in just the way that a criminal frames an innocent person to get him convicted by planting evidence. So God framed the universe to look older than it is. The usual question to that idea is, why would God do that? As a logician, I just want to point out, I don't owe an answer to that question. That question is irrelevant to the pointed issue. You're asking about a contradiction. 5764 versus 12 and a half billion. I say, God made it look older than that. You ask why. Suppose I say, I don't know. I don't know. I've got the foggiest idea. Does that mean it didn't happen that way? Is that evidence it didn't happen that way? It has nothing to do with it. So I don't owe an answer to that question. But we have an answer. We have an answer. The purpose of creating nature is to hide God's, hide God's uh, presence. To hide his activity. To make the world look as if it sustains itself without God. That's the purpose of creating the appearance of nature. Given that that's the purpose of the whole shebang, it's quite natural that this detail of, the, of nature, which makes it look older than the creation, will be part of it. So we have a very natural explanation of it, and not an explanation that was cooked up for this question. That explanation goes throughout Jewish thinking that God created the world, the, the appearance of nature, in order to hide his presence. The more sophisticated objection is this. You're telling me God made it look older than it is. Couldn't you have done that for any day? Any arbitrary chosen day? 5,000 years? 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, 2 million years, 50 years, 5 years, 5 minutes. That was Bertrand Russell's example. Proof to me the universe is more than 5 minutes old. Couldn't it have come into existence 5 minutes ago with all of this stuff distributed as we see it? And if so, the objection continues, if so, then your technique in answering this question would short-circuit all investigation, all analysis, all hypothesis, all theory, all thought. Because it means no matter what evidence you give for a proposition, you could always say the proposition is not true and the evidence was planted by God. And any method that short-circuits all investigation and all thought is an invalid method. It's an inappropriate method. This is the sophisticated objection. And the answer to the sophisticated objection is this. You're right. If we were to use it with no motivation, with no reason, 
Then you could ask, if you use it here, you could use it equally anywhere, and if you use it equally anywhere, you've destroyed all thought. But that's not the case. We're dealing with a case where we have a contradiction in our overall evidence. We have the narrowly defined scientific evidence, and we have the evidence for the Jewish tradition. And there's a contradiction in, two of the, in, in, in one proposition. Now, when you have a contradiction in evidence, then it is appropriate to suggest that the evidence may have been planted in a misleading fashion. Here's the analogy. George is accused of murder. They have his fingerprints, his footprints, they have the, a, a murder weapon of the right type in his possession. He has a motive. George's lawyer says only one thing. My client is being framed. That's all he is. He says that. My client is being framed. Will George get off? No. On the grounds that if he could get off with the mere claim that he's being framed, then everyone can get off. You can short-circuit any investigation that way. But now let's suppose that in addition to having the fingerprints and the footprints and the murder weapon and the motivation, you also have an eyewitness who said he saw George 100 miles away at the time of the crime. Now you have a problem. You have a contradiction in the evidence. And now the defense attorney says, the physical evidence was planted. The physical evidence is a frame-up. Now it would be relevant to investigate the possibility of a frame-up. Because there are frame-ups. They do happen. It's very rare and it requires considerable organization. Could you tell them please to be quiet for a minute? Thank you. It requires considerable, considerable organizational apparatus to plant enough evidence to convict someone of murder. But it does happen. So when you have a contradiction between the physical evidence on the one hand and the witness on the other hand, the suggestion that, there is a, that the evidence has been planted and it's a frame-up is a relevant, reasonable suggestion. No one will say, but if you do it here, you can do it everywhere. If you do it everywhere, there'll be no justice system. That's not, a rel- that's not, a, not an appropriate reply. So here, too, when you have a contradiction between the physical evidence and Jewish tradition, it is relevant to suggest that the physical evidence has been planted. And therefore, I think this is the second position, which is perfectly adequate. Yeah. Would that position not work because if God wanted to frame something, you wouldn't be able to pick it up? No. On the contrary, God has to create an ambiguous situation because in order for us to relate to Him, to serve Him, to worship Him, He has to give us some evidence that He's there. He's got to walk a line where there's evidence against and evidence for, enough evidence for that a reasonable person can come to the right conclusion, but also enough evidence against so that there will be a choice to be made. For most of the time, short of prophecy. In case of prophecy, there was no question. But for most of the time, it's quite reasonable that there should be evidence for it, evidence against, and a person that has to exercise his reason to make the right choice. And those who want to continue the discussion on these matters, 4.30 upstairs in the library.